You're listening to the N2K Space Network. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. So, lots of space strategy and policy announcements recently. In yesterday's episode, we were talking about the new Planetary Defense Directive from the White House, and today there's another policy out, this time focusing on developing and protecting LEO. And it's not just about the U.S. or even LEO today. The Space Safety Coalition is bringing together space industry from around the world to coordinate best practices on space sustainability for every imaginable orbit class. Basically saying if international governments aren't going to work out the space debris issue, international companies will. Today is April 5th, 2023. Happy First Contact Day to all who celebrate. I'm Maria Varmazas, and this is T-Minus. Let's check out the Space Safety Coalition Best Practices 2.0. The White House is taking a look at LEO. Kenya's first satellite is heading to orbit. And a conversation with T-minus executive producer Brandon Karp about the connection between the U.S. Navy and space systems. And more, of course. So stay with us. Now, here are your headlines for today. 27 companies, including major players like Inmarsat, SES, the Aerospace Corporation, and Airbus, have signed on to the Space Safety Coalition's version 2.0 of the best practices for the sustainability of space operations. The Space Safety Coalition is an international working group with members in the space industry, primarily in the private sector, who are all concerned about space sustainability and the lack of international coordination and established rule sets on standard operating procedures— especially in regards to space sustainability and mitigating the space debris problem. So, with coordinated governmental guidance or regulation on this front still lacking, they decided to come up with their own set of standards to address space safety, which, in their words, includes physical safety, communication safety, and space weather awareness. Physical safety includes avoiding launch and on-orbit collisions, minimization of human casualty from spacecraft or debris reentry, and the long-term sustainability of the space operations environment. Communication safety includes minimizing the incidence and severity of radio frequency interference, or RFI, events. If you want to read the entire best practice document, their website is spacesafety.org, and we also have a link in our show notes for you. While the Space Safety Coalition's guidance is orbit agnostic, a lot of eyes on space debris are especially concerned about ever-crowded LEO. The White House certainly is, 
as the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy quietly announced the National Low Earth Orbit Research and Development Strategy, a product of the National Science and Technology Council, or NSTC, along with the LEO Science and Technology Working Group. The goal of this strategy is to start better coordinating private public use and access to LEO for all kinds of use, especially in the strategy's words, in a post-ISS world. A timely goal, as the number of satellites in LEO is basically just exploding in number. The strategy has outlined five objectives, but the one I really want to highlight right now is the second objective, which is strengthen U.S. government collaboration and partnerships by encouraging new entrants in R&D through a LEO National Laboratory, promoting data sharing and prioritizing sustainable access to LEO. So that objective recommends that NASA start coordinating all U.S. federal activities in LEO for one thing. And secondly, as for prioritizing access to LEO for scientific research, the strategy says the DOD and State Department should take the lead there and, quote, continue to support the exploration and use of space for peaceful purposes, including the use of LEO for R&D. As such, the U.S. government promotes best practices, guidelines, and other rules of the road, as well as technological improvements that enable the enduring use of the LEO ecosystem. The U.S. government will continue scientific and technological research and development to prevent and address orbital debris, as well as to develop novel technologies to increase spacecraft endurance. Lots and lots to dig through there, and as always, link is in the show notes. It's been an interesting week for space here in the U.S. for yet another reason, and that is because of the Sea Air Space Conference that's been happening. This conference has been happening for quite a while now, but this year marked the first time it held a, quote, Naval Space Summit, which was marked by senior leaders of both the U.S. Space Force and U.S. Space Command, meeting with Navy and Marine Corps leaders to better coordinate space systems and operations that support the Navy and the Marines. Okay, so what does that all mean and why is it significant? Let's dig into that a bit. And with me now is T-minus executive producer, Brandon Karpf. Brandon, walk us through this a little bit. So what, what's going on here? Yeah, so the, the context that we see is when the Space Force was created, ultimately the Navy signed over the ownership of the space assets that support maritime operations to the Space Force. And then at the same time, about a year and a half ago, the Navy also created a officer designator called the Maritime Space Operations Officer. Um, and that is a whole community of officers within the Navy whose whole purpose is to leverage and employ space assets to support maritime operations. And so you see the Navy League here bringing in that focus and ensuring that in these conversations at the strategic and operational level um, that the space assets that, of course, are owned and operated by the Space Force are still being leveraged and employed and integrated into maritime operations. Right. So um, how, I'm, this is probably a really stupid question, but I'm just going to ask it. How integrated are space operations with the Navy right now? I mean, are, is it, are things still kind of terrestrial based or is space where most operations have sort of, in terms of communications and tracking and that kind of thing, is, has most stuff moved to space or is it 50-50? I mean, do we have a sense of that? Is that, do we even know? Really, it's mostly space. I, when you think about maritime mm. operations, ships are going out to sea. The Pacific is a huge place. You know, oceans are gigantic. The only way to really get backhaul communications to and from the ships, whether those are voice communications or IP-based communications, 
is through space assets. So for the communications part of the architecture, space operations are critical to naval operations. There really is no separation between the two. Ships need access to the space assets to do their work. So that's just on communications, right? We can also talk about PNT, position navigation and timing, where GPS is a core function of all maritime operations, whether it's through navigation, which of course is a critical component and proficiency of all naval officers at sea, um, as well as the positioning and timing, those signals from the GPS constellation that go into everything from the workings, the inner workings of the ship network, the timing of encryption signals and ensuring that the timing of IP networks matches up all the way to the actual employment of weapon systems like missiles that require both timing as well as GPS signals in order to function properly. Okay. All right. Last dumb question for me. Uh, <laughs> so given the importance and the integration of space systems and what the Navy does, um, I, the only question I can ask is, how, how is this the first time that uh, there's been sort of a Naval Space Summit? Is it just a function of the fact that Space Force hasn't existed up until recently, or uh, I mean, how is this new? I think so. Um, it, it's it's probably a couple things going on here. First, the Navy League, uh, which is the organization that leads the Sea Air Space Summit, they've really revamped over the last uh, year and a half, two years, under the leadership of Admiral James Fogo. Um, when he came on board to lead the Navy League, the Navy League it was more of a drinking club. Um, at, at this point, they're really starting to kind of come back to the forefront of naval strategy and naval operations and really understanding time power in the 21st century is critical to our national security and our national interest. And so what you see is sea air space over the last two years has really started turning around, whereas the premier naval conference was always west uh, which is put on by uh, the Naval Institute. Now you see Sea Air Space card starting to come to the forefront again. Um, West always had mm. participants from space operations. And then the second component is what you said, which is that Space Force is now a thing. They are really coming online in terms of full operational capability, uh, in terms of managing and equipping the joint force with space assets, and then integrating those space assets into the regular operations of those services. So I think it's a couple of those things all coming online around the same time uh, that is really making the focus uh, a little bit broader and more at the forefront of everyone's mind of how critical these space assets are to the operations of the entire joint force. I appreciate it, Brandon. Thank you so much for walking me through it. You're welcome. There's a great summary of the Navy space connection from Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, Vice Admiral Jeffrey Trussler. He said this, We don't have Cat5 Ethernet cable connecting us to anything. We're dependent on that spectrum to do our distributed maritime operations. So we're looking at how best to utilize and take advantage of all that capability. Because in the end, everything we do depends on spectrum. Speaking of spectrum, an opportunity here that might be of interest The U.S. Naval Research Laboratory has issued a request for information to support the Optical Sciences Division for the development, testing, and assessment of electro-optic infrared advanced intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance systems and technology. And if you speak acronym, that's an N-R-L-E-O-I-R-I-S-R-R-F-I. Questions are due April 12th and responses April 21st. We'll link to the Statement of Work, or SOW, for you in the show notes. 
And two bits of executive news worth mentioning today. The new CEO of Ariane Group is Martin Sion, who was previously the CEO of Safran Electronics and Defense. His key focus, like his outgoing predecessor, André Hubert Roussel, is on the maiden flight of the Ariane 6, which is currently targeting a late 2023 launch. And the other executive news is the Defense Innovation Unit, or DIU, of the U.S. Department of Defense has selected Apple Vice President Doug Beck to be its next director. As part of his role as DIU director, the DOD says this, Beck will oversee efforts to accelerate the department's adoption of commercial technology throughout the military and also serve as a senior advisor to the Secretary and Deputy Secretary of Defense on technology innovation, competition, and strategic impact. Now for some SpaceX news about a date you might have been hearing about in whispers and in rumors, April 10th. No, nope, we are not talking about Starship. No, this is a Falcon 9 launch from Vandenberg expected to launch no earlier than April 10th. It'll be for the Transporter 7 mission, a rideshare sending a number of small sats into SSO. Fifteen of the satellites on the mission are a manifest of ExoLaunch of Germany, many of whom are repeat global customers in this rideshare, including the Colombian Air Force, the Norwegian Space Agency, and Tubitak Uze of Turkey. And a new customer on Transporter 7 is a landmark first for this nation. The observation satellite Taifa-1 is Kenya's first operational satellite, fully designed and developed by Kenyan engineers. Taifa-1 will collect data for agriculture and food security purposes, said the Kenya Space Agency and Defense Ministry in a joint statement. According to Space in Africa, there are 55 African satellites in orbit, but none have been launched from Africa itself just yet, as the continent does not have a spaceport. However, that's going to change sooner rather than later. Earlier this year, Djibouti signed a memorandum of understanding with China's Hong Kong Aerospace Technology to build the continent's first spaceport. And speaking of spaceport, Saxavord Spaceport is hopeful that they'll have all the licenses they need so they can start launches later this year, especially since they already have two rocket launches planned for late 2023. Saxavard Spaceport is located in Shetland, UK, which is situated off the north of Scotland between the Faroe Islands and Norway. Once they're up and running, Saxavard notably will be able to support vertical orbital rocket launches, unlike Spaceport Cornwall, whose fortunes are unfortunately tied to the now bankrupt Virgin Orbit. Saxavard CEO Frank Strang says this, Given that Virgin Orbit has ceased activity for the time being and that the Cornwall Spaceport license is only applicable for two Virgin Orbit launches a year, Saxavord Spaceport is the only one able to support the government's ambitions for a buoyant space economy for the next 30 years or so. High honors for Northrop Grumman today. The company has won the highest award in the United States for Excellence in Aerospace and Aeronautics, the National Aeronautic Association's Collier Trophy. The award is for Northrop Grumman's work on the design and build of the feat of engineering and science that is the James Webb Space Telescope. It's extremely well-deserved. Go Webb, and congratulations to Northrop Grumman. And a friend of the show, the Beyond Earth Institute, is hosting a free event that you might be interested in. It's called From Surviving in Space to Thriving in Space, Closing the Human Factors Technology Gap. It's a deep dive into understanding the impact of the space domain on the human body and how policy can positively affect research in this area. The webinar is on April 26, 2023 at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and it's free to attend. And again, link is in our show notes. 
Okay, that's it for our stories today. And as always, our show notes are at space.n2k.com. And we also have selected reading, cool stories and features that we think you'd like to check out. There's a piece in there from Bloomberg today about how India is taking on China in the space economy. And there's a wonderful Q&A from Payload with Artemis II astronaut Christina Cope that I really enjoyed and frankly found kind of moving. I highly encourage you to check it out. We'll be right back after this quick break. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Welcome back. Okay, for today's fun fact, I'd be absolutely remiss in the eyes of my proudly Maryland-based coworkers if I didn't mention this. Artemis II Mission Commander Reed Weissman is proudly a Baltimore County native. Last time he was in space was aboard the ISS, and he wore an Orioles jersey, and that's the baseball team for Baltimore, if you didn't know. And he took a photo from space of Baltimore's famous Inner Harbor. Commander Wiseman graduated from Delaney High School in 1993, and apparently this year is his graduating class's 30th reunion. I don't envy anyone else showing up to that class reunion who thinks they can top his answer to, so what have you been up to? And that's it for T-Minus for this first contact day, April 5th, 2023. T-Minus is a production of N2K Networks, the news-to-knowledge platform for professionals. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. Original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Mixing by Trey Hester. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper.